The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 24th. Today, civil rights investigations are down at HUD. Airplane bathrooms are shrinking, and Apple products are getting even more expensive. One of the biggest powers within the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, better known as HUD, is something with a pretty wonky name. Secretary-initiated complaints. It's basically, it's like the secretary-initiated power that the HUD secretary actually has to initiate any sort of investigation into potential violations of civil rights. Tracy Jan covers the intersection of race and economy for The Post. And she's been reporting on these investigations into widespread systemic discrimination in housing. George W. Bush's second HUD secretary launched an average of five of these per year. Obama's launched 10. But so far, over the first two years of the Trump administration... Ben Carson has only filed one secretary-initiated complaint during his two years as HUD secretary. And what does that tell you that there are far fewer of these types of secretary-initiated kind of investigations under Ben Carson than under previous administrations? Right. Critics would say that you're not taking civil rights enforcement seriously. This is one of many ways that HUD has changed under Trump. And these changes run very counter to what the agency itself was created to do. So HUD basically is responsible for enforcing the 1968 Fair Housing Act. The law makes it illegal to discriminate against different groups of people. Most well-known is probably redlining. African-American families were prohibited from living in certain parts of a city because mortgage bankers wouldn't lend to them, realtors wouldn't sell to them, wouldn't even show them the homes. And so the law made it illegal to do that. They also protect people with disabilities, women, national origin cases. So HUD's job is to enforce the law, making it illegal to discriminate against people when it comes to housing. Instead of big investigations into systemic discrimination, HUD has been focusing on individual complaints filed by individual people. But Tracy says that there is a problem with that approach. These people being discriminated against don't necessarily know it. And why wouldn't Ben Carson or the the current leaders within HUD and within the Civil Rights Division, why don't they want to be more proactive about those kinds of systemic cases of housing discrimination? Ben Carson would say that he does care about housing discrimination and that we should not tolerate illegal discrimination. I think a lot of it is a philosophical issue as well. So you have some Republicans who feel like they don't want the government to overstep their bounds and go looking for something that may or may not exist, especially if resources are finite. Well, you say looking for something that they're not sure whether or not that exists, but we know that housing discrimination exists on really large scales in cities across this country. That's true. But that's also a main reason why the Fair Housing Act, that's 50 years old now, is not really being enforced that strictly by HUD. It's never really been enforced that strictly. It wasn't until during the Obama administration that they passed a rule, it's kind of a mouthful, affirmatively furthering fair housing. 
that rule basically forced cities and local jurisdictions to examine the data, look at where segregation exists, and come up with a plan to fix it. I mean, cities could just self-certify, say, yeah, I'm doing this. They don't even have to turn anything into HUD until the Obama rule came. And then they had to start submitting this stuff. And then, you know, some people thought it was too burdensome, including the secretary. So this was a rule that was passed under the Obama administration that basically said, if the federal government is going to give you money, give you as a city or you as a state money to build housing, you have to show us that this housing is going to be used to better integrate communities. That right. It's going to serve sort of underserved populations. Right. Not just that housing, but if, if you're getting any sort of money from the federal government, community block grants for other reasons, you need to look at your whole entire city, ideally your whole metropolitan area. So you'd be doing this jointly with neighboring cities. What other ways has the business of HUD changed in the last couple of years? So in addition to rolling back this Obama-era rule and not using the secretary's power as forcefully or as aggressively as previous HUD secretaries, Ben Carson is also revisiting another Obama-era rule. And that rule basically holds you know, lenders and landlords liable for having policies that end up discriminating against people, even if that's not on face value the intent of that policy. So, for example, if you require criminal background checks, that usually ends up discriminating against men of color. And the rule is called disparate impact. That rule has also been suspended. It's being revisited. So they are going around, you know, figuring out how the current rule aligns with the Supreme Court ruling. Fair housing folks are very worried that this is a first step towards revoking the rule. When you were talking to people who work at HUD, what did they have to say about what it was like to see how the priorities of their department have shifted over the past few years? Okay, so first of all, you should know that no one who works at HUD will speak on the record because of the environment that they're working under right now. And, you know, I talked to people at high levels and lower level folks and people who would normally would, on the ground, who would, you know, notice these types of systemic discriminatory issues and bring it up. They're telling me that we might see certain things, like we don't feel like bringing it up in this administration would really yield much, except for perhaps religious discrimination or gender, because HUD is making a priority of sexual harassment in housing or disability issues, familial status. But if it's a race issue or a national origin issue, they just don't feel like that's going to rise to the secretary's attention. on the American Airlines flight to, from Reagan National to Los Angeles today. Um, there's a pretty long line outside of people waiting. So you're not imagining it. Um, Bathrooms on airplanes are getting smaller and smaller. So small, in fact, that the Post's Lori Aratani says you couldn't even open up a whole newspaper inside of one. She would know because she tried. I'm told that the bathrooms are about the width of a newspaper, so I'm going to try and open up a newspaper and see if that is indeed true. Yeah, they're right. It is about the width of a newspaper. There you go. Okay. 
So my real question here is, did you take this flight specifically to use the small bathroom or did you just happen to be a flight with one of these miserably small things on it? No, we we picked this plane and this flight specifically because we wanted to check out these bathrooms. We'd heard about them, but we wanted to see for ourselves and we wanted to talk to people who were using them. So exactly how small are we talking about here? So I know 24 inches can be sort of hard to envision. You can think of two subway footlong subs, um, but you're thinking... <laughs> Well, that seems small, but what were they before? So our intrepid graphics folks um, dug through the archives and found out that it's about 12 inches smaller. So they used to be about 36 inches wide. So now they're 24 inches wide. Oh, my God. Wait, so tell me more about what it looked like on the inside of this bathroom. So it, it looks like any airplane lavatory. The one thing that struck me was there were a bunch of mirrors in it. There's a lot of mirrors in here, so I guess that helps you feel like maybe uh, you have a little more space. But um, you go in and you think, oh, and then you look at the sink and you realize... The sink is tiny. I'm going to try and take a quick measurement at the sink. Um, people told me you can only fit one hand in here. And that appears to be the case unless you have very small hands. I mean, Lori, you're what, like five, six, five, seven, like a pretty svelte person. And if you don't look like Lori Aritani, if you don't, if you're disabled, if you are a larger person, if you, you know, walk with a cane, I don't know how you're going to use this bathroom. And if you have or say you're traveling with a small child, you might have trouble fitting the diaper bag, but at least you don't have to put the baby on the toilet seat, right? You can pull the changing table. But if you have a toddler, you know, I talked to folks who said, you know, they have to leave the door open because they can't fit in there with their kid, with their, you know, three-year-old, four-year-old. So why are airlines doing this? It's about the bottom line. It's about making more money. It's about being able to get more people on that airplane. So the company that makes these bathrooms, these new space bathrooms, their advertisement is that you can have enough room for six more seats. Um, and does that really make that big of a difference in, in an airline's bottom line? It does. So uh, one analyst said one seat can be worth about $400,000 um, over year? the course of a year. What, just putting in one seat? Putting in, in one seat because you figure how many times, you calculate that out by how many times a day that plane flies, right? Passenger pays however much. You know, most, um, most airlines, I think, uh, American is reconfigured, so I think they can get 12 additional seats on there. Jeez. So it is money. And you, you think, well, gosh, you know, that seems so small. But, you know, baggage fees, 30 bucks, that adds up over the course of a year. What do airlines say when they see all of these complaints about the fact that things are already tight in the bathroom and that it's getting even smaller? Well, this is interesting. Airlines say they haven't had complaints. What? <laughs> they say they... I asked a couple of times. They said, no, we're, we're not aware of complaints because the Wi-Fi on these planes is fabulous. You know, the overhead bins are fabulous. And I think what they're counting on is that they'll put all these other amenities on the plane so that, you know, I know the bathroom's really small, but my Wi-Fi was super fast. Or But, but still, I mean, this is just part of a larger trend of airlines taking things away from passengers. I mean, there's the bathrooms, but there's also seat sizes, right? Yes, there's seat size. Well, this is the thing. So if you're the airline, what you your line is, this is about choice. So, okay, you don't have a choice about these tiny bathrooms because they're just tiny bathrooms, but you could fly first class and you could get a bigger bathroom. And I know maybe the they may be shrinking the legroom or the pitch, but 
if you want a more spacious seat, well, then you can pay for it. So we talked to different passengers. There was a a lovely retiree named Shirley Sosen who remembered the days when she used to fly with her family and it was very luxurious and fun and it was a real treat. When I was younger, I remembered you actually had china and you had all, you know, silver utensils and the bathrooms were big. You could put your makeup on. Not anymore. I mean, you could probably still put your makeup on. You just have to, like, stand on the toilet at the same time as you do it. (laughs) So the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, is in charge of regulating airlines and putting in standards to make sure that things are safe on aircrafts. Are they looking at this issue of these small bathrooms at all? I, I don't know that this has reached their radar screen. I don't know that it's Congress has made some movement on seat size. Um, the FAA has been charged with looking at seat size and potentially setting a minimum seat size. You know, the concern there is, can you evacuate? Is the space so tight? Is it going to make it difficult for people to get in and out? But by and large, the FAA has really left it to the airlines. So I think unless you have an incident, if someone gets stuck, if there's a safety issue, then maybe they'll act. And now that we're flying these narrow-body aircrafts cross-country, the so flight using I these smaller aircraft smaller for, aircrafts for longer and longer yeah. flights. Yeah, so my flight was from D.C. to um, L.A., which is five hours. You know, and so when they hand you that free can of soda, <laughs> maybe it's not so appealing anymore. Well, it's not going to be free anymore. So <laughs> That's true. That's true. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lori. Sure. And now, one more thing. The price tag on an iPhone this year might make you a little less inclined to make it a Christmas gift. There was a huge leap last year when Apple came out with the iPhone X, which was the first time that an iPhone had hit $1,000. Tech columnist Jeffrey Fowler says iPhones have gotten more and more expensive since they were first introduced 11 years ago. This year, they topped it even more with the iPhone 10s Max. If you were to max out the Max iPhone, it would cost more than $1,400. It's basically the price of a computer now. Apple's prices are tied to the most powerful trick in the business, this thing that Jeffrey calls the happy trap. People love using Apple stuff, but with each new product, the Apple services and apps you use make it harder to shift your digital life to any other company. It would be pretty annoying, for example, to get your friends and family to switch from iMessage to some other messaging service, right? Apple in particular is really good at keeping people just happy enough with a set of of related services and capabilities that you really can't exactly replicate it anywhere else. So you stay put. Even when Apple offered a cheaper model of the iPhone, people would still buy the more expensive version. It's like we've been trained by Steve Jobs and years of Apple marketing to think that you need to future-proof. You need to max out and get the top-of-the-line product. The iPhone 5C, people thought the C stood for cheap. But the strategy might not be able to last much longer. 
Consumers may not be buying the cheapest iPhone, but they also aren't hankering to upgrade to the latest version. That cost the company nearly $190 billion this year. Apple's in a bit of a funk right now. Its stock has gone way down this fall. People are not upgrading. They're not buying a new iPhone nearly as often. There's a lot of uncertainty out there about whether the loyalty that Apple has generated is you know, going to continue to be as profitable for it as, as it goes forward. Jeffrey Fowler is a technology columnist for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. If you're in the holiday spirit, we'd love for you to rate us on your favorite podcast app or tweet at us using the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with a special edition, Holiday Stories from the Washington Post. Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.